for this opportunity to hear from your word. We're thankful for the example and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, our firm foundation. And as we really dive into this topic of tribal anger, I pray that you will give all of us a posture of humility, where our deep desire will be to please you and not vindicate ourselves. I pray for Holy Spirit that you will be active in in imparting these words and that where I am in error and where I can be misunderstood. Holy Spirit, that you will make your teaching clear and evident to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title of this message is Tribal Anger, and it's related to kind of a growing cultural concept of tribalism, which has gotten a lot of press these days. And it's not all bad, right? Tribalism forming a tribe, uh, speaks of the need that we have to operate in community, right? Where we organize ourselves and where we are interdependent on other people. We look to others to help nurture uh, our young, to instruct, to reinforce our values, and to protect us against outside threats and enemies, And often the enemy is in the form of a rival tribe. Now, it used to be that tribes were organized by geography, culture, and language. But in this century, really in this decade, there's been a a new means of organization. One social scientist said that one of the most transformational human events happened when happened when Facebook added the, the like button or, tweet, tweet, or you could retweet a, a comment. All of a sudden, it became very uh, easy and convenient to publicly express your views and your ideals. And as a result, tribes are often ideologically formed. And how you answer the following questions will determine to what tribe you belong Questions like, do men and women have different roles? Do men start off with an advantage? Will hard work always lead to success? Are you proud to be an American? Are you proud of your country's history? Should government take less responsibility to ensure that everyone is provided for? Right? If you answer yes to all those questions, you are on one side of the spectrum. If you answer no to all those questions, you're on the other side. And what we're seeing is that there is a a growing contempt and antipathy between these two sides. There's ideological warfare, and if you don't believe me, get a Twitter account. And here's the problem. Tribalism reinforces our own values, and we become estranged from other tribes. And, And when we become estranged, there is suspicion and fear over what that tribe might try to do if they get power. And when we're afraid of something, when you're afraid of something, the natural inclination is to want to destroy what we're afraid of. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody in my family, but we have a certain member of our family who is afraid of spiders. And whenever she sees one, she calls on one of her sons to destroy (laughs) said spider. 
right? But that's the idea. Like, what do you do? When you have power over the spider, you squash it, right? And so in our day and age, there is this idea that when you're afraid of something, you're afraid of what they might do when they get power. Therefore, it's almost a kill-or-be-killed environment. And in this heightened tension, there is a disposition that you must raise your enemies. R-A-Z-E, raise your enemies. But what's the Christian mission? Is to reach or to rescue our enemies. And you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. This type of tribalism and antipathy towards other people, it existed in Israel. Right? Remember the reluctance that Jonah had to go to Nineveh? And we see it here in a passage that really resonates with me. It's in Luke chapter 9, starting verse 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. It's kind of an interesting outreach. Repent or die. You see, James and John were insulted on behalf of Jesus. Jesus tries to reach the Samaritans. And if you were a Jew, the Samaritans were the them. They were the enemy. They were a problem. And the natural inclination is to want to destroy them. In this case, through supernatural fire from heaven. Now, I resonate with this passage because I often find myself getting angry at all those people who slander Christians, blaspheme Christ. Right, it's really interesting that whenever I watch a movie and somebody quotes a Bible verse, you know they're going to be a bad guy. The, this world chastises the church for tolerating sexual abuse in our midst, and when churches do something heroic, like trying to stop sex trafficking, it gets linked with conspiracies. Right? It's almost like you can't win. And in this sort of injustice, there is this impulse that I have, and I suspect you might too, to want to just burn it all down. Hell can't happen fast enough for those people. And do you see the problem? Right? We are to take the gospel to all nations, right? We are to be witnesses. And really, one of the greatest threats to our gospel ministry is not the opposition from without, right? It's the antipathy from within. If the heart desire of the church is to raise our A-Z-E, our enemies, then we will not be motivated to try to rescue them or, or warn them. Does that make sense? And this is a critical lesson because Jesus is addressing a very serious threat to gospel ministry when he sees the anger and the tribal anger of James and John. 
Jesus makes it very clear that, yes, you will have enemies, but it's one way, right? It's their antipathy towards us, their hostility towards us, not the other way around. And so how do you deal with this tribal anger? Well, we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to see the basis for tribal anger, the temptation to tribal anger, the manifestation of tribal anger, the rebuke of tribal anger, and then the alternative to tribal anger. And if you remember one thing, our goal is to reach our enemies, not to raise them. So let's look at the basis for tribal anger. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that phrase right there is a turning point. It is a a hinge in the Gospel of Luke because before we are being introduced to Jesus, Jesus is making himself known. He's manifesting who he is. There's this this intrigue about who is this messianic leader. He is on the rise, but now things are starting to turn. And setting his face towards Jerusalem, there is this grit, this determination, this conviction of a prophet that he must go to this holy city where he will be taken up. But before he's taken up, he will be betrayed, he will suffer, He will be crucified, he will be buried, resurrected, and then he'll go up to heaven. So he's setting his face, he's making determined effort to go down there. Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of his ministry is going to be in Jerusalem. But the rest of his ministry will be oriented towards what's going to happen in Jerusalem, namely his suffering and his death. So in this case, he makes his way south. He did most of his ministry in Galilee, and and the most direct route to Jerusalem would run through this region called Samaria. Now, when I say Samaria, you think Samaritan. And when I say Samaritan, do you have a good or bad impression of that? Right? The good Samaritan. Samaritan's purse. Samaritan's ministry. We have a Samaritan fund. But when you say Samaritan to a Jew, at that time they had a very different impression. There was bad blood between the two. Now, as you guys all know, I have an open love and affection for my KU Jayhawks. And the hated rival for the Jayhawks is not K-State, right? It's Mizzou. Why the hostility towards Mizzou? Well, because in 1863, a man by the name of William Quantrill led a rogue Confederate unit from Missouri to Lawrence, killed 150 unarmed men and boys and burned a quarter of the city to the ground. And every time we whipped them tigers, is to avenge that reality. Right? There is some, don't roll your eyes, Becky, this is history. <laughs> Serious. Right? There's some bad blood. There's some bad blood. So when you look at the Jews and Samaritans, there is some bad blood. Now, have you ever wondered how the Hebrew people and the Israelites all of a sudden became known as the Jews? It it happened where after the reign of Solomon, the northern tribes rebelled and set up their own nation with their own worship. And and eventually, uh, they were taken captive on account of their apostasy. They were taken away by the Assyrians. Some of them remained, 
But many Assyrians uh, moved into that northern kingdom and intermarried with the surviving Samaritans, and they became what was considered a mongrel people. They had their own place of worship. They would worship on Mount Gerizim. They were considered an apostate half-breed nation. Now, the Samaritans had a different way of looking at this. It was their belief that, okay, so we were taken away, but so was the southern kingdom. And the reason why the southern kingdom was punished was because they had an apostate religion where they geographically located the center of their faith in the city of Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Because they erroneously believed that Isaac was offered up at that location. But the Samaritans believed, because they believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that the actual location of the sacrifice of Isaac was not on the Temple Mount, but on Mount Gerizim in the north. That they were the true faithful descendants of Israel. Now this is where it gets interesting. Remember how we went through Nehemiah? And Nehemiah came back to try to rebuild the walls to protect the temple. Who was opposing Nehemiah and the Jews and their construction of the temple? Sambalat, the Samaritan. Right? So the Samaritans tried to stop the Jews from worshiping in the rightful temple. Well, a few centuries later, the Jews developed some self-rule, and a leader by the name of John Hyrcanus marched to the north, okay, a Jew marched to the north, you know, Jews from Judah, and he actually destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. Right? There is some serious bad blood. I think a modern equivalent would be the difference between the Shiites and Sunni Muslims. Right? There is bad blood between the two. And so naturally, for Jesus to even go through Samaria, that was a big step. And this leads to the temptation to tribal anger. Look at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So common practice, right? Before Jesus were to move his posse down to Jerusalem, they would go through Samaria, but they needed a place to stay. So some messengers go ahead and, and they, they say, hey, attention everybody, Jesus who, of Nazareth, who you might have heard of, wants to stay in your village. And when he stays, there will be some benefits. Bring your demon-possessed, bring your crippled, your lame, your sick. I'm sure he will conduct a nice healing ministry for you. So he's the Messiah. If you don't mind me asking, this is a Samaritan talking. So he's the Messiah. Where's he going? Uh, well, he's on his way to Jerusalem, of course. Jerusalem? What kind of Messiah would go to Jerusalem? I mean, if he was a true Messiah, he would be at Mount Gerizim. No, he's not welcome here. He's not welcome here. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That's all we need to hear. Get him out of here. He's not welcome. You can go some other place, but not here. 
And this action tempts James and John and the rest of the disciples toward some serious tribal anger. And I think there's three reasons why. Number one, correctness leads to contempt. Okay, correctness leads to contempt. It's hard to be humble when you're right. It's hard to be humble when you're right. Remember there's this raging debate about where is the center of the religion? The Samaritan said it's Mount Gerizim. The Jews said it's Jerusalem. Who's right? The Jews were right. Jesus broke the tie. The biblical testimony is that Jerusalem is the proper location of the temple. Now, when you're right, it's pretty easy to have contempt on the people who are wrong. Now, I was back at my alma mater this past week, enrolling my son in college, and I went to the men's room. And when I went to the men's room, I noticed a plexiglass container on the wall in the men's room with feminine hygiene products given away for free. I didn't take any, just so you know. (laughs) Free is my favorite word, but there's limits. Now, it's really easy to have contempt on the people who put it there, right? Are men men? Can women become men? Can or here's a better question. Can men menstruate? Yes or no? Can men? Yeah. Are you guys right in believing that? Yeah, absolutely. We're not idiots. Now, when you say that, isn't it easy to have contempt on people who believe otherwise? It's hard to be humble when you're right. Hard to be humble when you're right. Secondly, rejection of kindness can lead to contempt. I mean, there might have been some sort of discussion where Jesus said, we're going to go through Samaria. Jesus, what are you, we're going to go through Samaria. What are you talking about? Listen, I've come to reach all people. We're going through Samaria. Okay, Jesus, we'll take a chance on them. You, you know about those Samaritans? No. Get down there and just do it. Okay, we'll do it. Right, and they, there is an offer where Jesus is willing to stay in their midst. He's been willing to stay with tax collectors. He's been willing to dine with the unsavory members of society. And, and, and he is willing to engage in these Samaritans. And what happens? They say no. They insult him. When you extend kindness to someone someone who would not normally extend kindness to, and they reject it, what's the natural response? Is to say, they are who I thought they were. I offer them grace, they reject it, they are irredeemable. Now Martin Luther, the young Martin Luther, was appalled by the treatment of the Jews in Europe. He even wrote correspondence about how it is wrong and unchristian to have all these anti-Semitic sentiments among people of the church. It was his firm belief that when you strip the gospel out of the, the, the Catholic trappings and present the true gospel to them, that they would naturally convert. And they didn't. And this is where Martin Luther, who did many good things in his life, went dark. He wrote a book called On Jews and Their Lies, where he actually advocated for burning down synagogues and schools. 
right? When, when grace, when kindness is rejected, it's easy to have contempt for the people who do it because you start seeing them as irredeemable. Thirdly, loyalty can lead to contempt. It says, but the people did not receive him. Now, previously we talked about how John was out of shape and out of sorts because somebody wasn't joining or following the disciples and he was casting out demons when they weren't certified, right? And Jesus says, he who is not against you is for you. But in this case, John's not upset that he's been insulted, right? He is upset that Jesus has been insulted. And this is where understanding an honor-shame culture can be helpful. See, in an honor-shame culture, honor is procured in three ways. One is by purity and cleanliness, right? If you are adhering to the law, conforming to the standards of the community, and always doing it, you get honor. Secondly, if you... You can get honor through power and benefaction, where if you uh, helped somebody by dispensing some of your wealth or your power, they return the favor by giving you honor. And then the third way is by faithfulness and loyalty. In an honor-shame culture, it doesn't matter if the member of your community is right or wrong. What matters is they're part of your community. And it was expected that if someone insulted a member of your community, you paid it back. And so if somebody, let's say, insults your mother, you grab the baseball bat and the brass knuckles because that's what you do if you're a good son, right? Or a good daughter if you want to be inclusive. Loyalty... towards people and towards the community can blind people, right? Because ultimately we are to be loyal to the Lord, (laughs) not our community. But in this case, John and James were loyal to Jesus and Jesus was the perfect leader. They had every right to be loyal and to have honor. They must defend his honor through seeking the destruction of those who assaulted the honor of Jesus. And how does this manifest itself? Well, you see the manifestation of tribal anger in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is an interesting request, isn't it? Now, James and John thought that they were doing a good thing here. They believed that they were acting nobly. They weren't ashamed of this request. They just wanted Jesus to sign off on it. Jesus, you don't need to dirty your hands here. We're going to get the brass knuckles and baseball bat from heaven, and we're going to take out all of them. Right? Jesus, you told us that if we have faith, we can move mountains. Well, we have faith, we can call down fire from heaven. Everyone will know what happens when they insult you, Jesus. That Samaritan village over there will be the smoldering reminder of what happens when you cross the wrong Messiah. Jesus, you just say the word and they're toast. I mean, have you been there? You might think, oh, those stupid disciples. I'd never want to call down fire from heaven on people. Well, there's an interesting German word. If you're studying for the SAT, remember this, Schadenfreude. It means harm joy. 
it's having a deep sense of joy and satisfaction in the misfortune that happens to other people. Right? During the COVID pandemic, it was really interesting to watch. So-and-so was a prominent anti-vaxxer, and then they died of COVID. And it was almost like people just loved that. And we were rightfully offended. You don't rejoice in the death of anyone. But then the Supreme Court releases a decision that breaks our tribe's way. You read some stories on it, and then you see a link, click here to see liberal meltdowns. <laughs> oh. Click. <laughs> you see a blue-haired blue lady screaming at the sky in rage. You go to another one, they're weeping and wailing. You're just thinking, <laughs> I'm sorry. You're delighting in it. You know, and there's something dark in your soul when you start delighting in the pain of your enemies, right? It's almost like you're rooting for Satan to do his job to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? The, James and John, they wanted no survivors indiscriminate destruction. Every man, woman, and child in that village is to die. That's when you see the rebuke of tribal anger. But he turned and rebuked them. Now that's what it says in the ESV. If you had the NESV, it reads something like this. You know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, if you look at the footnotes, you will notice that this is something that was probably added to the text. But it is true, a true statement, isn't it? It, it agrees with John 3:17, "For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him." Jesus' mission was to redeem, to rescue, not to destroy. Now, you might push back and say, well, is it wrong to just bring up the topic of, of judgment? Well, when Jesus sends out the 72, he tells him in Luke 10, 10 through 12, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, for I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Right? There is a place of warning people of the wrath to come, but there's a difference between warning people of the wrath to come and being the agent of the wrath to come. Divine wrath is God's job, not yours. Our job is to warn people of the wrath of God, to appeal to them to repent, and pray that God has mercy and gives them enough time to do so. Jesus rebukes them because the story is not over for them. He knew something they did not know, and this is where we see the alternative to tribal anger. Verse 56, they went on to another village. There's no curse there's no pronouncement of their eternal guilt. 
They leave in a peaceful direction. And then as we keep on reading, the next chapter, we see the parable of the good Samaritan. Isn't that interesting? And then as we keep on reading, we see the ten lepers who are healed by Jesus and one returns. And remember the ethnic identity of the one who returned? He was a Samaritan. And then as we keep on reading to the sequel, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power, this Jesus speaking, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 8, an evangelist by the name of Philip preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. The Samaritans begin to believe. The disciples are like, wait a second. They're believing and they send out a delegation which includes Peter and John. Peter and John. And this is what they see. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had not only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and being baptized in that way was clear confirmation that they were fully accepted into the community of faith. They were now part of the church. John saw that. And verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now I imagine that at that point, John might have remembered this story and thought, I'm sure glad those people weren't incinerated. And then John is transported up into heaven. We know this in Revelation. What does he see? Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying aloud with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People from every tribe, every tribe will be there. Our goal is to reach the tribes, not destroy the tribes. Now, is there a place for anger? Well, we know that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There is a place where you can agree with God. And when God's name is blasphemed, when you see about the evils perpetrated against children through sex trafficking, the murder of unborn children, there, there is a place for anger. Where you agree with God that that's evil. But we're also called not to let the sun go down on our anger. If our anger overheat, so to speak, if it escapes containment, it can lead to a community meltdown and distraction from what we're called to do. So if you find yourself given to tribal anger, and I will include myself here too, what's the remedy? I've got five 
five exhortations for you, okay? Number one is, remember that you were an enemy of Christ. You were an enemy of Christ. Titus 3 is a great passage. Start in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Notice how they're to be respectful and submissive towards authorities, right? Anybody complain about the government here? Right? Yeah, convicting, right? I know. But then he does this. So why are you to be so gracious to them? He says, for we ourselves, verse 3, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right, that is my autobiography, by the way. I didn't write it, sorry. That came out wrong. My biography. I had a chance to see a, a high school friend I haven't seen in 30 years. And last time I, I talked to him, I was not a Christian. And I kind of had this sense of shame. It's like I wanted to apologize for everything I said and who I was, right? When you think back to who you were, you were that Samaritan who rejected Jesus and worse. So what happened? Well, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Right? You were an enemy of God and His people. And yet God in His kindness rescued you. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't destroy you before that happened? Do you think you instigated tribal anger in Christians before that time? I, I did. Secondly, so remember you were an enemy of Christ. Secondly, leave justice to God. There is a tendency that we want to avenge our wrongs. Right? If somebody assaults somebody you love, your mother, your father, your wife, your children, right? There is a tendency that you want to lynch them. And that desire for righteous anger is a good desire, but it has to be channeled correctly. In Romans 12, 19 through 21, Paul gives us this admonition. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? This is written by Paul, who was an enemy of the body of Christ, who was one to be a friend of Christ and a friend of sinners and a, an apostle to the Gentiles. You see, there is this impulse that when you are wronged, when you are angry, to overdo justice. This is why in our justice system we try to have impartial judges and impartial juries. Because when you're wrong, when you are defrauded, vengeance is mine. But God says no. That desire for vengeance will corrupt you more than you know. That's going to be my job. My job is I will avenge them. They will pay. Either their sin will be receiving wrath on the cross or in hell. That's up to the Lord. 
But for you, but for you, you love them. You serve them. You love your enemies. Thirdly, you need to remember the heart of God. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, leaving aside the theological tension, the Lord does not delight in dispensing his wrath. He's not smiling and laughing over the torment of people in hell. And neither should his people. Fourth, remember your true enemy. Remember your true enemy. Right? There is an enemy from without. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? There are dark enemies. And what is the objective of these enemies? Well, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When you're rooting for the destruction of your enemies, right, when that is the desire of your heart, okay, hear me out here. You're expressing more of the heart of Satan than the heart of God. When you have this bloodlust and a desire for destruction, you're expressing the heart of Satan more than the heart of Christ. Also, so don't do his work, right? Don't do his work. Don't root for his work to be done in hell as it is on earth. Then you have Colossians 3.8, the enemy within. But now, he's talking to Christians here, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, right? There is this desire to have wrath and anger in all of us. He says, put it away. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this, the Russian dissident who was wrongfully imprisoned in, in the Soviet Union. He says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. Right? Do you really want to nurture that evil in your heart? You really want to feed it. And that's why you need to do the fifth admonition is to sow to the Spirit. Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Every day we make a choice about what we're going to feed. Are we going to feed that impulse to fear and become angry at your tribal enemies? Or will you feed that impulse to love and have compassion on your tribal enemies? Right? Are, are you focused on those evil conspiracy theorists or Christian nationalists? Uh, are, you, are you focused on all the evils of the LGBTQ lobby and those 
far-left progressives? Are you thinking about their destruction or are you praying for their salvation? Now, in 1976, Syria invaded Lebanon. And for the next three decades, they oppressed the Lebanese people with a brutal rule. One missionary recounts having a conversation with various members of a Syrian church, and one pastor shared how his, his father was shot and killed by the Syrians. Another woman told the story about how she was holding her baby at gunpoint, praying that the soldiers would shoot her, not her child. Another church leader talked about how his village was sieged by the Syrian army for 100 days and they would not let any medicine or food into that village. You can imagine what would happen. Well, in 2005, the occupiers left. The Lebanese got their freedom back. But in 2011, as you may know, Syria engaged in a brutal civil war. And hundreds of thousands of Syrian migrants crossed the border into Lebanon looking for relief from their suffering. Now, one church decided to reach out to them, offering food and shelter and clothing, but Hikmat Koshu, the, the pastor, was, wanted to do more. And he was met with resistance. People remember what the Syrians did to them. And so this is what he did. He brought a Syrian community leader to church, had him sit down, got out a bucket of water and a sponge, and proceeded to wash his feet in front of his congregation. And this is what he said. As I got close to his feet, I saw the feet that stepped on our childhoods and destroyed Lebanon. I remembered our war and all that happened to us. Right? You can understand that, right? But then something happened. He said, I felt that God bowed down and started to clean my wounds. And that church exploded. And 70% of the congregation consists of Syrian immigrants. Isn't that amazing? See, Satan has blinded the hearts and minds of the world. They, they hate us, but they don't know what they hate. And one of the strategies of the enemy is to, is to basically say that Christians are the photonegative of our enemies, right? If they spite, we spite. If they have anger, we have anger. And the conviction to love our enemies shows that we are a, a different people of a different spirit. The only reason why we have enemies is because they have declared themselves to be our enemies. It doesn't go the other way. See, Jesus is trying to rescue the mission. James and John, there'll be no mission if you destroy all your enemies. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the great thing that we talk about is, yes, there is divine anger, but there is a second chance. Reconciliation is offered to you. In the words of Pastor Hikmet, the most powerful tool in sharing the gospel is what? It's forgiveness. It's graciousness. It's the offer of reconciliation. Right? And this is the heart of Jesus. Right? If you have tribal anger... Jesus still loves you, right? That's the good news of the gospel. If you have tribal anger, he still offers a pardon and forgiveness. But you have to own it. You have to confess it. 
and you have to reorient your, reorient your life so that you understand that your mission here on earth is not to raise your enemies. Right? God will take care of that in his time. The goal is not to raise your enemies, but to rescue them. Let's pray. Father, I come before you um, confronted by this serious text, but Lord, you speak and we listen and we trust that this message is of you. Father, we understand that we live in a hostile world and that many people are hostile to what we believe because they're hostile to you. We understand that if they persecuted you, they will persecute us. So Father, give us the heart of Christ towards our persecutors and those who hate us. Help us to meet their slander and their hatred and their hostility with love. That we will show the world that we are of a different spirit that we have been transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit and that you might use this church to reach those who are hostile to the gospel as we once were. Help us to honor you in the application of this message. In Jesus' name, amen.